Welcome back to the podcast, you guys. Today, you are in for such a special treat. We have Amberly Lago, an extraordinary woman and with an extraordinary story on the podcast. Ever since I found her, gosh, more than maybe two to three years ago on Instagram, we became fast friends and I have admired her for truly her, what she epitomizes, her grit and grace. And so let's dig in and hear from Amberly. I am so good. How are you? I am good. I am so happy to finally be talking with you. Thank you. Well, I feel the same way. And it's so interesting. You know, it's people are so funny with social media. And I we could, I know, talk for hours and I'm not going to keep you forever. But um, I know that people think, you know, social media can be so fake and it can be so, you know, it's it's just, you know, everybody's good stuff out there. And I'm like, I have met the most incredible humans through social media, you being one of them. I mean, when I somehow came across you, I was just like, I need to know her on like a whole nother level. And that's how I felt about you. Well, and (laughs) thank you. And it's so cool to just have uh, one thing that you take time for. And I know you are one of the busiest people out there. You always commenting, always encouraging It says so much for just who Mm. you are as a person that you take the time, but it also means so much for the people on the receiving end, you know, that you are seeing that and you are honoring the content and it's just, it means the world to me. Thank you so much. You know, um, I've had people go, oh my gosh, you like you comment on so many people's posts and stuff and you respond to so many people. But you know what? I know how when I was at my low, low, low point, when somebody would just take the time to answer me or respond to me, it really helped. And I know how that feels. And so that's why I do my best to try to respond. So thank you for just acknowledging that because I I do my best. Like (laughs) today I'm so behind on so many (laughs) things. Yeah. But it's it's like, you do what you can do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. I mean, I just can't wait to what I really, you know, you and I didn't chat back and forth about like a topic or anything like that. And what I feel in my heart that I want so desperately for my audience to hear is just your story. Mm. And I felt like I knew your story through your social. And when I got your book... I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how much I just hung on to every single word. It was one of those few books that like, I couldn't wait till the end of the day so I could get into bed to continue. Oh my goodness. You are amazing. Well, thank you so much for just taking the time to read it. Oh my gosh. It's so amazing. So I want everybody to read it. And, but, but here, I know we don't have all the time in the world, but will you just start out by kind of sharing your story? I know it's a lengthy one and it's in depth and I don't know if there's a shorter than six hour version because it's so crazy, but will you kind of share like how, what happened and, you know, just your whole story and how you came to be who you are today and where you are today? Oh, thank you. Well, it's so wild because I'm actually in Texas again now. I grew up in a small town that's a little bit further from where I am now. We just moved here. I was in LA for 31 years and it's kind of crazy to be back in Dallas. And, you know, sometimes I get in my office and on Zoom all day and I'm like, oh yeah, wait a minute. I'm in, where am I? I'm in, I'm in central time now. But, you know, I grew up in this small town and, I had big dreams. I think from the time I was eight years old, I was like, I know I want to move to LA and become a professional dancer. And, you know, people kind of thought I was crazy for wanting to do that. And I think it was when MTV came out and I saw these music videos and the dancing. And I was like, wait a minute, you can get paid to dance. I can get paid to do what I love. Well, I got to figure out a way how I can do that. But so dancing Mm -hmm. to me was such a a big passion of mine. But I always say that pain 
kind of pushes you until your vision pulls you. And I definitely had some painful experiences growing up and looking back on those experiences, I'm actually grateful for that because it taught me so much um, that I feel like pain has been my greatest teacher. And, you know, my, Mm -hmm. my parents divorced when I was young, my mom remarried to a man who sexually abused me. And when you're little and you trust someone that it's a parent or a loved one and you, you trust them. And then they do something like that. And they tell you, this is what dads are supposed to do. This is how dads teach their children. And in your gut, you're like, this isn't right. But they're telling you, no, this is right. It teaches you not to follow or listen to your gut. And so it's taken me a long time to learn to really listen to my gut. But that, that pain really, it didn't feel safe at home. And now, you know, my, my stepfather's passed away. My mom and I have a great relationship now. And so do my dad and I, but when I was about 13, I actually went and told my dad. Now my stepdad told me, don't tell anybody, or I'm going to kill your mom. And I know this is kind of heavy for, a. (laughs) this is kind of a heavy subject. I'm all about getting right into it. Yes. But, oh, I mean, I believed him. I he, I thought yeah. he's big, he's strong. He he's he he would hurt my mom, who was you know mm. I just was my everything. And you know, meanwhile, my mom was working two jobs. We didn't have much money. There were lots of Christmases where she would say, "We're not going to have presents this year," and thankfully, the church would drop off money at our doorstep. And and so I finally got the courage up to go tell my dad and ask him for help. And I said, dad, promise you won't tell anybody, but this is what's going on. And he didn't tell anybody and he didn't do anything. And at that moment, I thought, well, it taught me something. Well, I'm going to have to take care of myself. Nobody's going to do it for me. If I, and the next time my stepdad came into my room, I, I fought him and I kicked him and the look on his face. And that was the last time he ever touched me. And I still didn't feel safe at home. And what did feel good to me was doing more of what brought me joy. And my default began, it it was to do whatever I could do to do better as a person and feel better. So I became a little bit of an overachiever. I was a straight A student (laughs) in all honors classes. I was like, you know, class president. I was in the French club secretary. I, I, you name it, I did it. I excelled in sports. I became the fastest runner in track. I set a record for running the two mile, the fastest in dance. I was not the best. I was the youngest, but I made company. We won our first champion. And I thought there is a way to feel better. There are things I can do to feel good. And so that the pain. Amberly, like how incredible that you as a child turned it into that versus numbing the pain or feeling better through drugs and alcohol or feeling better through, you know, like that's miraculous. Well, it's, you know what, my brother's. Mm -hmm. grew up in the same household, they did turn to drugs and alcohol. And this isn't in my book, but my little brother sits Mm -hmm. on death row here in Texas Mm -hmm. because he was a sweet kid that didn't have any coping mechanisms, turned to alcohol, then drugs, and it escalated. And he sits on death row. Actually, it's kind of crazy. It makes, makes me, my heart hurt. I got two letters from him. And it's on my list to write them. It's just, it's crazy. Sorry, the gardener's outside right now. So I hope you can't hear the lawnmower. (laughs) He just showed up. Um, But yeah, you know, I didn't turn to drugs and alcohol at that time in my life. I really became somebody who was like, I am going to do something with my life. And so at age 13, I started working. Well, at age eight, it's pretty crazy to think at age eight, I was already babysitting. It was crazy to think these families trusted me to watch all of their kids at age eight. And then at 13, I started teaching dance. At 16, I worked at the mall at the place called Cookie Jar. I lifeguarded. I scrubbed toilets. I'm telling you, I did whatever I could to earn enough money because I was getting the hell 
out of there. I was like going to go after my dreams. And I saved up $1,200, packed up my little Suzuki Samurai. I'd, you know, saved up enough money to put a down payment on a car and make payments on it. And I didn't have parents that were like, okay, well, we're going right. to go to LA with you and find a nice little apartment and get it furnished <laughs> yeah. for you. It was like, you know, my mom was like, why are you taking everything? You're going to be right back. And I'm like, no, mom, I am going to go make myself. I'm going to be a professional dancer. I'm going to go make something in my life. I'm out of here. I drove to my dad's and my stepmom. The last thing she said to me was, Amberly, I think you're making a big mistake. And I was like, I didn't have encouragement. My dance teacher, who was my biggest mentor, and I love her dearly, mm-hmm. um, she wanted me to stay because I was her best dance teacher. So yeah, she was losing her dance yeah. teacher. Um, mm. But I went and I, you know, ignorance is bliss. It was crazy. Absolutely. I didn't know what I was Absolutely. doing. But you know what? Do you A think, month- though, you know, you said it was hard for you to honor that whisper. I always say, listen to the whisper that it's always guiding us. Do you think there was, because I had that same pull to California. I mean, when I was in fourth grade, I was going to ride my bike across the United States and move to California. And I ended up moving to California in kind of the depths of my despair at 21. But there was a, there was some type of pull. Do you think there was something there, even though you were going a million miles an hour and and, you know, you feel like you weren't listening to your intuition. Do you feel like there, there was that knowingness, right? That that was, there was God on my side. Always. Yes. God yes. was with me always. I remember, um, where I feel closest to God. I mean, I grew up going to church, but where I felt most connected to God, my higher power was when I was outside in nature and yeah, man, I feel like running track is when I, mm. when I really started talking to God, I mean, we I had, a con- we had conversations and I feel like, you know, in my roughest spots, even, you know, God was always, so that whisper was yeah. a force greater than myself yeah. that was yeah. always with me. And, um, I had, you know, I, I was, I remember going, I was like, I got to get, I got to get a job. I got to get some jobs. Cause I got 1200 bucks and I got to have money to pay rent and keep a roof over my head. And I stayed in this little crappy motel. When I first got there, there were cigarette burns on the wall and I would prop the chair up under the door, under the doorknob, because I felt like the guy at the front desk might try to come in my room. And I remember waking up the first night that I was there and I woke up and the top was off my car. And I was like, what's different with my car? I'm like, Oh, someone stole the top off of it. So for the, Oh my gosh, crazy. And I didn't have enough money to buy another top. So I drove around LA for the first year I was there with no top on the car. And I auditioned for my first music video and I got it. And so there I was thinking my dreams are coming true. I'm with MC Hammer dancing in his video. Can't touch this. And then it was like, it was incredible. You know, it didn't pay much. We shot for 23 hours straight and I was in heaven. And my biggest goal was to get on scholarship at this dance studio. And I thought, well, if I go there and take as many classes as I can the first month, I'm not the best dancer, but if I work harder and they can see how hard I'm working, maybe they'll give me a chance. I just got to make sure I show up, stand in the front of the class. Let me tell you, the first ballet class, the teacher had a cane. She was about 80 years old. She started pointing that cane at me, telling me she was going to cut my arms and legs off if I didn't point my toes. And I left that class crying. I remember going around the corner and thinking, okay, I could give up now, but I I can't go back. There's no option B. This is it. So I went back into the yeah. very next ballet class she had, and the look on her face was like, wow, okay, I guess this girl's serious. <laughs> she came back for more. And I went back, and I went back, and I kept trying, and I made scholarship, and I was the worst dancer on scholarship. But at the end of the year, and I didn't go anywhere except for the dance studio and this little tiny you know, apartment that I had the end of the year, I was awarded like most 
uh, excelled from going from the worst <laughs> to, because I was required to take the most classes. And I think that, you know, just last weekend, I got to see my dance teacher yeah. and my niece takes classes from her still here in Texas. Wow. And I just honor her. And she taught me, her and my track coach taught me so much more than how to dance. She taught yeah. me, she mentored me. She taught me how to run a business. I mean, mm. I, when I saw her last weekend, I hugged her and I cried and I said, you're my greatest mentor. You've taught me so much about life and about how to run a business and be an entrepreneur. And I remember, you know, little things that she would say that sounded harsh in the moment Yeah, really taught me that grit and perseverance. Yeah. And I remember yes. she said, I, she said, I don't care if your dog died, I don't care if you lost your best friend. When you put that needle on the record and you turn around to teach your class, you better have a smile on your face because it's about them, not you. Mm -hmm. You better do a good class. Wow. And it was like, okay, like you and, and I was taught if you're yeah. early, you're on time. Yes. If you're late, you're cut. Like we couldn't yeah. be late. I remember I was late one time and I got cut out of that dance Never number. So little things that she taught me how to run a business, how to show up, how to be early, how to be grateful, how to be kind, um, have taken me so far in my whole life. I lived on the dance floor and then on the gym floor, had a successful business um, in the fitness industry. I had trainers that worked for me. I mean, it, I was a single mom for a long time and still built this big business up and, and, um, met my husband, life was going good. And I finally felt like, man, I'm living the California dream. Finally, through some yeah. rough times, a horrible divorce, child custody, that oh, terrible. And I was like, life is good. We were told we wouldn't be able to have a baby. We had a baby. So I had two healthy daughters, a husband that loved me, a booming business. And man, everything changed in the blink of an eye when I was hit by an SUV coming home from work on my motorcycle and, you know, mm -hmm. being hit and seeing it so vividly, like remembering every moment, sliding down Ventura Boulevard and coming to a stop. And I remember looking down at my leg and, you know, I'd just come from work. So I had leggings on. I thought it felt like my leggings were the only thing keeping my leg on my body. It was just broken oh. into pieces. My femoral artery was severed. So blood was everywhere. And I, in that moment, I'm laying there. And one of my first thoughts was, well, I might have to train clients on crutches for a while. Like that, was, it's crazy what goes through your mind. Isn't it crazy? Yeah, it's like you can't process the reality. I've, I feel like never, ever have I been in a situation like that to that extreme, but I've certainly been in enough situations where you think this isn't as big of a deal as it turns out to be. You know, it's not oh, going to alter I had no the course idea. of my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had no idea. And, but it was interesting looking back on it, the things I was thinking, I was thinking only about other people. Like when, cause that was my first thought, like I'm going to have, I, I, this sucks. I might have to train clients on crutches. Then I was like, Oh crap, man, my husband's going to be so pissed. I had his brand new backpack on and I'm like, his backpack's going to be filled with pulled pork. I had a pulled pork sandwich that, that my client brought me. So I was thinking my husband's going to be upset. Then I was oh cussing saying, I was screaming out like some, Oh, you know, F word. Yeah. Like call 911. And then I was thinking, man, my Methodist mom's not going to be proud of the way that I'm cussing <laughs> like this. And I'm like, here I am literally dying on the street. And, yeah. and you know, everything was perfectly lined up, timed out. Do you know the paramedics were right down the street before they got the call, they could see the accident and wow. they were running to the accident. A guy made a tourniquet on my leg and basically saved my life because I was bleeding wow. out. There was a, a nurse that drove by and she came over and she grabbed my hands and she's like, I'm a nurse. I need you to sit here. I need you to breathe with me. So she calmed me down. Paramedics loaded me up and I'm in the back of the ambulance. And 
I am everywhere. Oh, I, I just, I was squeezing the paramedic's leg and I was thinking, looking at him, you know, when you look at somebody to kind of go, is this okay? Like, am I going to be okay? Yeah. Yeah. And he would not make eye contact with me. And I thought, oh my gosh, well, I might be dying. And then the pain was so bad. I was like, well, I wish I would just die. It was bad. Right. We get to the hospital and the room is filled with cops. My husband's a cop and, and news travels fast when you're on the brotherhood or sisterhood of the police force. They thought maybe I was a cop that had gone down. And I hear this just wailing. And I'm like, what is that? It was my husband. He's a big, strong guy. I'd never seen or heard him cry. And I thought, oh, my God, he's freaking out. I I yelled across the room because I'm taped down to a gurney. I said, honey, get over here. I need you to be strong for me because I really needed to know, is he going to be okay to take care of our kids? Right, right. And that's the last thing I remember before they put me in induced coma. And uh, I woke up and the first thing I learned. in the coma? I was in for a little over a week and man, I don't recommend being in a coma. <laughs> you wake up and it's like, you got tubes. I mean, you can laugh about this. I mean, you got Gosh. tubes going down your throat and I was trying to rip, you know, you, I wake up and I'm uh, yeah. fighting. I wake up fighting, like wake up fighting, t- trying to pull these tubes out. And the nurse is like, oh, honey, honey, don't do that. You can't do that. And then... <laughs> They're like, I think she's trying to say something. And the first thing I wrote, they gave me a little notepad and I wrote on there, get off my tubes. See, my husband was leaning over the bed, tears in his eyes and cutting the circulation. I couldn't get air because I couldn't get any air. And like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. (laughs) (laughs) And then I said, the second thing I wrote was don't tell Savannah. And that was my oldest uh, daughter. And she was on an eighth grade school trip. And I had no idea how long I'd been out. Yeah. And uh, then they said, I'm sorry, we're going to have to amputate your leg. You only have a 1% uh, chance of saving it. And I thought, well, 1%, well, there's still a chance. Whew. Yeah, They said absolutely. one. There's so you mean there's still a chance, kind of like that movie. Right. They probably thought like Dumb yes, Dumber that yes. movie. So you're yes. saying there's a chance? <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> and I was like, well, we got to find a doctor who's willing to take that chance with yeah. me. Man, that yeah. took an act of God. That took a lot of pulling strings, knowing some powerful doctors with connections. Got me transferred to Cedars where Dr. Wiss who this amazing man saved my leg, 34 surgeries in total. I had a team of doctors, but 34 surgeries, and they were able to save my leg. And 34. that- I mean, can we just take a moment there? Like that amount of surgeries over what period of time? That's insane. Well, I was in the hospital the first time in total, about three and a half months. The The first yeah. time I was there, I was there about two months. And, mm-hmm. you know, being completely bedridden, I couldn't use the bathroom on my own. My leg was held together yeah. by these metal bars called like a halo. And uh, mm-hmm. I would have a surgery, then I'd have a day to recover. Then I'd have a surgery wow. and I'd have a day to recover. And I was just taking it one day at a time, focusing on, well, what can I do to be my strongest to get through this next day? And um, it was crazy. And that's one of the reasons, like we thought about moving closer to family because we didn't have any family. I mean, I've got my, my, one of my best friends who's like my adopted California mom and I had incredible clients and friends, but we didn't have family. And so one of the reasons we stayed in LA for, you know, after that was because I couldn't be away from my doctors and these specialists. And so about three and a half months after the accident, you know, being an athlete, I'd been hurt. I'd broken my leg. I'd torn muscles. I'd had sprains. I knew that, you know, you just, you heal, you recover, you work hard and you get better. The only thing is I wasn't getting better. 
I was in excruciating pain every day, but I was still pushing. I was still working as hard as I could to get better. They said uh, it'd take two years to learn to walk again. And I'm like, man, they don't know me. I'm going to, I know (laughs) that can't be right. That's, you know, let me prove them wrong. (laughs) Way too long. And so at three and a half months, I was so proud to be upright on my crutches. And I was had a doctor's appointment and I thought, man, this doctor is going to be so proud of me. I mean, I look scary. I'm completely, you know, scarred up at this point from, my hip all the way down. My leg is like a balloon. I can't even put a shoe on that foot. But I was upright on crutches and I go into the appointment and he looks at me, examines me a little bit and runs out of the room, doesn't say a word. And I looked at my husband and I said, well, that's not what I was expecting. Right. And he comes back and he gives me the worst news of my life. He says, you've got something very serious. And I'm kind of like, duh, dude, I got hit by an SUV, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, I know. Three and a half months, all these (laughs) surgeries. Yeah. He said, no, you've got complex regional pain syndrome. He said, your life is never going to be the same. He goes, Uh, are you the kind of person that likes to push through pain? And I said, kind of proudly, well, yeah. Yeah. Thinking like, man, he can tell I've got a PhD and suck it up. Like, yeah, I got this. And he said, no, you need to go back home and get in your wheelchair. And I said, okay, well, for how long? And he said, forever. He said, you're going to be permanently disabled. You'll never be able to work again. You'll probably- Is this the same doctor? Is this doctor, is it Weiss? No, uh, Don Weiss is the one that put my leg back together. This was like a general practitioner that kind of assesses what I'm going to need. And he was giving me like an assessment of- what kind of medical needs I would need in the future for surgeries. And then when I got his, all his paperwork back, I'm like, why is he giving me something for if my leg is amputated? I was like, doesn't he know I saved, I saved my leg. I'm keeping it. Like I'm not, I'm not getting rid of my leg. I'm keeping it. Well, about a year into being diagnosed with CRPS, which is dubbed the suicide disease, by the way, because it's ranked highest on the pain scale and there is no known cure. And I tried all kinds of stuff. It was crazy. So I'd never done a drug in my life, never tried drugs, never wanted to, never even liked to take aspirin. I mean, I went from that to getting induced with ketamine to try to reboot my nervous system and reboot this, you know, pain. I had a spinal infusion where they go in and put metal leads in your back. I had spinal blocks, spinal radial frequency, Eastern Western medicine. At one point I was on 73 homeopathic pills a day and 11 different prescription. And I was like, screw this, man. I'm not taking anything else. I went off everything cold turkey, which was very dangerous because I could have gone into to seizures because of withdrawal. Yeah. And, um, and then I, I had a glass of wine and I realized, dang, man, this kind of helps with the pain. Why, why didn't doctors just tell me just have, right. a glass of wine? have a glass of wine? Well, from being an athlete to quickly finding myself drinking every day. And I knew, well, this isn't the healthy thing to do, healthiest thing to do. But if this is what I have to do to get through the pain, then I'll just do it. And I became an alcoholic. If you're looking for some more in-depth training on mindset practices and how to create your vision, how to reverse engineer your goals, how to craft your morning process, all of the things that I'm super passionate about, you guys, the Rise Up course is where it's at. It is literally my lifetime, my mind in a course Every single tip, strategy, and hack that you could possibly ask me about is in this course. So jump into the show notes right below and you'll see the link for the Rise Up course and my Rise Up planner and you guys can rise up with us. And um, I knew... You know what's so crazy? Going back to the beginning of our conversation with, you know, not at a younger age, turning to drugs, turning to alcohol, which was my story. I've always believed, first of all, there's so many similarities just between our psyches, you know, and and how we operate and the perfectionism and that we're going to be the best at everything. 
And I see, and I, I really almost want to conduct like a big study on this, that genetically, I believe that it is the same. You know, people say you're genetically predisposed to alcoholism or drug addiction. Mm-hmm. I believe that it's not alcoholism or drug addiction. It is something genetically that just makes us driven, right? Driven, whether it's, for me as a child, it was driven towards being the best at everything. But then when I found drugs and alcohol, it's like, it just switched over to that. When I finally got sober, it just switched back to like, well, now let me go be the best at this and this and this and this and this. And And so it's, we got to channel it the right way. Yes. Yes. I I completely agree. We can channel it into changing the freaking world if we want, mm-hmm. but I don't think people are doomed to be, you know, oh, well, you're an alcoholic, your family has addiction in it. It's like your family might have alcoholism and addiction in it, but that might be your biggest blessing ever if we use it correctly, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I completely Agree. I mean, and I think that a lot of, you know, recovering or recovered, you know, addicts, alcoholics are so driven and really good at being resilient and really good at figuring out other ways of doing things and getting what they want. Yes, we're good at that. You know, yes, yes. (laughs) Like, you know, And so, yeah, I got uh, 2016, I, I was, I got sober. I was at a place where I was like, man, how did a good girl like me end up like this? Like it was bad. And I thought my husband doesn't deserve this, but I was thinking, you know, my kids could find another mom. He could find another wife. I was really starting to think, yeah, this is not, I I can't go on living in pain like this. Yeah. I can't do this. I was about to give up. And there was just this glimmer. I think we all have this light within us. And mine was just barely a flicker. And I had kind of turned my back on God. Well, he hadn't turned his back on me. And I got on my knees and I just prayed, please help me. Yeah. And then I called a friend. I, I call actually I called a client of mine that I knew had been to meetings and man, I was so I had so much shame. I was so just mm-hmm. humiliated, but I was desperate. And there's a yeah. gift in desperation. The gift of desperation, absolutely. And it made me reach out and I asked for help. And um I, I tell you, if you're listening and you're like, man, I need help, yeah. reach out and ask for help because it saved my life. And it, it, I, I'm not afraid to ask for help. You know, as a kid, when I talked about ask for help and I didn't get it, that yeah. really stopped me for a long, long time for asking for help. I always had to be the rock, the strong one, yeah. the fixer. Yeah. And I pushed all that pain down and I pushed all those feelings down and Man, pain demands to be heard. It will come out in everything you do, the way you love, the way you lead, your relationships, and everything you do. It demands to be heard. And so it's not easy. Oh, my God, the first year of my sobriety, I think I cried every day when I I had also shut those feelings down for a long time because, you know, when my stepdad would get me to a point where he'd make me cry, he would say, I knew I got you. I knew I could make you cry. And so I'd think, well, I'm never crying again. Right. Yeah. I used to pride myself on that. I I don't cry. I don't cry in anything. You know, nothing makes me cry. I haven't cried in this many years. I mean, I think back when I I used to say that, I'm like, oh my gosh. And now I'm just, uh, I think I've cried three times in the last 45 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so hard. I can remember my sister in early sobriety and, and this was just so it speaks to early sobriety. She said, I feel like a cat with no skin. And I'm like, absolutely. You just feel like every nerve ending is exposed, which you can relate to literally with your leg, right? But like, that's how your entire being feels in early sobriety. And it's not an easy road, but- Oh my God, it's not an easy road. And, And, you know, I went from- sneaking my drinking. So I was hiding that. And I remember, you know, 
saying, no, I hadn't had anything to drink and feeling like I, you know, this is what I got to do and trying to pull it all together and like trying to hold it all up and make it look okay on the outside and on the inside. I was just dying on the inside. And, and then I had told my husband, I think I need help. I got a problem. He goes, oh, you don't have a problem. Anybody would have a drink if they were dealing with what you were dealing with. And he had a lot of shame because he was a lieutenant commander with a highway patrol. How could his wife be an alcoholic or have a drinking problem? No way. I said, yeah, I think I need to go to one of those meetings. And he said, (laughs) oh, you don't want to be around those people. And so I went from sneaking my drinking to sneaking, going to get recovery. And let me tell you, there was nothing scarier than deciding to go to a meeting and just watching these women walk into a room and kind of following, not know where I am. And I went in and I sat in the back of the room and I had to sit on my hands because I had tremors so bad. And I sat on my- First meeting, somebody offered me a cup of coffee and I couldn't take it because it would have spilled all over me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I sat in between a nun and a cowgirl, this lady with a cowboy hat, like a nun, full on in like a nun. Like I was like, welcome to the- sobriety in, in LA. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love sobriety in California. <laughs> oh my gosh. It, I heard hope. Yeah. I heard people share what I felt and heard how they got through it and saw their strength. And I thought, that's what I want. I I want, there's got to be more to life than what I'm doing right now. My daughters do deserve more and they've been my biggest inspiration. And, um, you know, it hadn't been an easy road, but I uh, completely reinvented myself, decided to write a book. Didn't, you know, didn't even own a computer five years ago. And so my whole business was, you know, by word of mouth and I didn't use a computer. I didn't have any social media. And, um, I started telling a couple How many at this point, when you get sober, let me just ask this. How long after the accident is that? How old are your daughters? And where are you with the pain now that you don't have the alcohol to kind of numb it out? Um, well, when I had the accident, my youngest daughter had just turned two years old and my oldest daughter was, uh, 15. So big, big, uh, ages, important ages for little girls to have their mom taken away for a while. And, um, now my oldest daughter is 26 and she's actually going to medical school, medical school at Yale and um, oh my she says it was because of all the surgeries I went through that inspired her to go practice medicine. And my youngest daughter is 13. She'll be 14 this weekend. And um, she's a little entrepreneur and she's got the biggest heart and grit. And man, she can be stubborn and She is amazing. She already has her own business. She's just, she's a equestrian training for the Olympics. Um, It was just my 50th birthday and she imported a betta fish, like a real fish from Indonesia with her money. Um, That is an amethyst color because she knows I love amethyst and that represents sobriety. So talk about a heart. I mean, yeah, it's, she's amazing. Um, so I look at what, you know, I decided I don't want to be a victim. I want to be the victor of my life. And I want to be an example of resilience for my daughters. I want to, for them to see me and know that they can get through challenges and know that there are ways of getting through adversity and that they can be comfortable in their own skin and they can find serenity and joy and happiness and have the life of their dreams. Even if their circumstances are narrow, they can have the life of their dreams. And so um, it took me a while to accept all the scars that I have and the way that I look. But I can say um, that I am comfortable with that now. And 
And I just talked to a friend of mine on the phone yesterday who has this incredible story. And he's like, I'm thinking about sharing it. And I said, you know what? I think it's real important to share from a scar and not an open wound and make sure you healed from it. And then you go for it. Cause I can't tell you how many people still like really make fun of me on TikTok and because of the way that I look and all the scars and TikTok is brutal. TikTok yeah, is brutal. I just, uh, I, I kind of giggle at it. I mean, and yeah, then on yeah, Facebook the to. other day, I posted a picture and you could, I had a skirt on and it showed my leg and people that already know me, they were commenting on it. And then it got down to this one. It was probably this young kid. Um, he goes, yeah, but did anybody see the way her calf looks? <laughs> and I was just like, and he did like this ugly squiggly face, like what the right. hell is that? You know? <laughs> and it's like, it can be shocking. You know, I can't tell you how many right. times I've walked by. There was this one time. So I was at the four seasons there in Westlake and I was with a girlfriend and we had our bikinis on and we were walking by the pool and there were these two dudes <laughs> And I could see their eyes, like they looked and I could see them panning down, like looking. And I'm like, oh, they're going to be, they're going to be jumping or throwing up here in a minute. (laughs) And sure enough, they're panned down and they're, oh, like they saw my leg, you know, and they're like, oh, good Lord, what happened to her? Um, You know, it took, you know, it was really Dr. Wiss who saved my leg that really helped me start to love myself and my leg again, because I actually, it was about maybe a year after the accident and I could not, uh, the pain was so bad. I was like, what? I, I, I can't live like this. We need to go ahead and amputate it. And I went into him. I said, you know what, Dr. Wiss, I appreciate all you've done. I appreciate all these surgeries you have done, but this is just too much pain. I got to get on with my life. We need to amputate yeah. it. He said, we can't do that. You've got CRPS and it could spread. That's not the solution. And um, he did I mean, even when you make a decision to amputate it, thinking I've got to make the hardest decision of my life, but the pain will end. He says, that's not an option. That's not an option. And it was exactly what I needed to hear because it really helped me get in acceptance with the pain and really embrace it instead of fighting it. And I was able to, once you accept where you are and accept what's going on, then you can start to make better decisions with your life. And so instead of trying to stuff it down and ignore it, um, I was like, okay, well, what does my body need? What do I need? Um, Then he sat in front of me And he put my leg in his lap, like he had on this nice white coat. And usually they'll put your leg up on the table. And he put my leg in his lap. And my first thought was, man, I can't believe he's putting my ugly, disgusting leg on his nice white coat. And he looked at it like it was his masterpiece. Like he he just held it and he looked at it like, wow, look at what we did. This is amazing. And tears just started streaming down my face. And I thought, wow, if he can look at it like that, maybe I can learn to love it too. And something Mm -hmm. shifted in me. And I think it's so important to have somebody, I mean, that, that accepts you or loves you or believes in you, that, that sparks some confidence in you before you can do that yourself. And so that's why I'm a firm believer in having mentors or coaches connecting with other people who have been through it and gotten to the other side and not just in real life, but on social media too. That's one of the reasons I, the minute that I saw you on Instagram, I'm like, I love her. She's my people. I, I, because you share what it is to get through all kinds of challenges, whether it's health or business or sobriety or whatever it is. And so I really admire that about you. And um, I think it's so important to surround yourself with people who keep it real and they tell you how to get to point A to point B um, and provide that roadmap for you. And so um, it hasn't been an easy journey, but 
there are ways to tap into your resilience and we all have it. And I still have getting back to the question. Sorry, I kind of went off on some other stuff. No, but, no, no. I love it. But <laughs> I still have pain. Actually, yeah. it's a lot better, a lot better yeah. because I have learned to take better care of myself. Now I had to completely change everything. I had a doctor tell me, well, it's a good thing that you are, are healthy and you're not overweight because I don't know if your leg could hold you up. So wow. there are things in life that it's important to me to go to the gym, not because really not because I'm like, oh, God, I want to look good. Well, yeah, I want to look good. That's not why I go. I go yeah. because being able to walk and keeping my strength and being yeah. able, you know, for my leg to hold me up depends on whether or not I get to the gym. My mentality depends on whether or not I get to the gym because movement moves your mind and it really yeah. does for me. And I've had people say, you know, well, how can you work out when you have CRPS or how, you know, or they'll text me and say, well, I can't work out because I have CRPS in my right leg. And I'm like, oh, I do too. But right. you know what? There's always a way to yeah. figure it out, to move your body. And, sure. you know, yeah. doctors thought I was crazy in the hospital because I asked for a pull-up bar to be installed over my bed. I and love that. And you got it, right? I got it. They're like, oh, geez, okay, let's get her the bar <laughs> over the bed. And I was doing pull-ups and I had one of my oh. trainer friends bring me some dumbbells. He like took some from the gym, brought them, you know, <laughs> these used dumbbells to me. And I wasn't working out because I'm like, oh, I've got to work on my biceps. No, I was right moving my body because of what it did for me mentally. It made yeah. me feel like I was moving in the right direction. It yeah. gave me confidence. It gave me a sense of uh, feeling of that I was able to improve my body, yeah. my mindset, and, and my health and everything that I was doing. And I really feel like everything we do is either moving us closer to our goal yeah. or further away. It is either hurting us or helping us. And I mean, every, ev moment. Every, moment, every moment, yeah, every decision we make. Whether yeah. we're going to start our day, you know, for me, whether I'm starting my day, you know, on my knees in prayer, right before yeah. this, I ran into the bathroom. I'm, you know, trying to get ready right after this. I'm going for this TV interview in Dallas. And so I'm in the bathroom and I'm trying to put some makeup on and stuff. And I said, oh, I, I, I probably shouldn't have gone to my recovery meeting on Zoom. This day's so busy. And I said, but I needed it. Like yeah. that's the most important thing. And so I think Absolutely. it's really important to know what your values are, what your priorities yes. are, because yes. it's easy to get thrown right. off. It's easy right. to follow a shiny object, but you got to stay yeah. true to you. Absolutely. And what matters to you. Say that because that was... I can remember sit, standing in my childhood bathroom. My mom was, we had, the laundry was in the bathroom. She was doing the laundry. And my sister and I were both in sobriety. And it was the first time I ever heard that expression. She said, the way that I see it is in every moment, you're either moving towards a drink or away from a drink. And I remember that kind of startling me, like in a healthy fear, thinking like, oh my gosh, she's right. And so whether it's a drink or not a drink or fitness, you know, health or ill health or a good marriage or a bad marriage, it's like defining those values and knowing what they are, just like you said, and knowing that in every moment we're moving one way or the other on that spectrum, you know, mm -hmm. that's powerful, powerful, powerful. And you're right. I mean, I think we have such a gift in sobriety and it's like, we're, it's so just ingrained in us to always keep what matters first, keep first things first, you know? And it's like, we don't get to do the interview for the TV or the podcast interview if we're not sober, right? Mm -hmm. Like none of that exists. And so in a way, our we are forced to keep first things first. And oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I heard, I just had um, Rebecca, Rebecca Zung on my podcast the other day. She's an amazing lady. Oh my gosh, she's amazing. And 
she said one of her mantras that I'm like, Ooh, I'm taking that one. I love that. She yeah. said, uh, I guard my light with my life. And I was like, mm. Ooh, I love that because yes. what a drink does is it shuts off the light. Yes. And yes. no light. And I think it shuts off the light a lot of times for non-alcoholics. I am the least judgmental person when it comes to anybody's consumption of alcohol. All my friends, you know, I have no oh, judgment. Oh, me either. I mean, I go out to dinner. My husband yeah. last night, he has a, a beer every time we go out to dinner. Yeah. He's a total normie. He just like when we go yeah, out to eat, so he likes to have husband. a beer. It's yeah, kind of annoying, it's isn't it? So <laughs> or they have one bite of dessert. I'm like, what is that about? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, how do you, you left half a beer? What's wrong with you? Right. What is wrong with you? <laughs> but I do think in general, whether we're talking about, you know, eating sugar or eating, you know, making a healthier choice. And I'm not a big believer in perfection at all. But every choice we make is either bringing more light or it's dimming our light. Mm -hmm. every single choice, especially when we're talking about things that are affecting ourselves physiologically, because we don't get a chance to have that mental clarity or that spiritual connection when our physiology is clouded. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, 100%. I, I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so that's why I, you know, I had a friend just yesterday say, wow, I think it's, that's really great that you get up at 5 a.m. every day to start. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I do that for me. I right. I'd be a lunatic that. if I didn't. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> you know, me. my family will thank me later for getting <laughs> up and having that time to pray yeah. and journal and do my gratitude practice and yeah. set my mind on my intentions and have that quiet time. Um, so you can connect, but also have that quiet time in the morning where you can listen to the whispers, yeah. as you said, listen to yeah. your heart and, or you're pulled in a million different directions. Yeah. You know, it's tempting. I want to, I, I, there are times I want to get up and check social media. I'm, I'm right. human. I want to be like, Oh, what's going on in the world today? You know, yeah. um, I will check my phone for one thing, and this is just recently, and it's, uh, but before I wouldn't touch my phone for the first hour, but I do look at, I got this ring, it's called the Aura Ring, have you ever heard of it? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I'm not I mean, sponsored by them or it's anything. It's all like I'm very, I'm enamored by it, I think I might have to get one. Well, I really like it because, yeah. um, and when they listen to this, by the way, we both want to be sponsored. Just say no. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. We're both big believers. <laughs> big believers. No, but you know, I kept getting myself in trouble because I wasn't getting enough rest. And yeah. I, I'm really good at the grit. Like I can say, there's not a lot of things that I can say I'm good at. I can say I'm yeah. good at grit. I can work hard. Like to a point where it's not good. I've ended up in the hospital. Like it's not yeah. good. And so yeah. I've really had to learn to give myself grace on, you know, overcoming being a perfectionist, you know, yeah. um, on beating myself up for not doing enough or, you know, and yeah. not getting enough sleep, like working yeah. my butt off. And, and so I, I, uh, had a friend of mine say, you know, oh, I love to rest. I'm like, you love to rest? I said, I grew up I with rest. I was like, what? I was like, no, <laughs> resting means quitting. Resting's for, you know, that's the athlete in me is like, you yeah. know, resting's quitting if you don't. And, and my dance teacher was like, if you want to rest this one out, your understudy will take over for you. So there was yeah. like the wrong yeah. mentality for me. I had to switch that sure. to, no, it there's abundance you're, you know, what's meant for you will be for you, but you got to take care of you. And so yeah. this ring has made it like a business strategy for me yeah. to got like, okay. Cause it, it, I guess it's the competitive part in me. It's like, yeah. it tells me, uh, you know, good optimal day, right. great job. You got eight hours of sleep. And I'm like, yes. used to be like you eight hours win. of sleep. Yeah. I'm going to win versus, 
eight hours of sleep, man, I got to get to work, you know, that's, you know, yeah. It's so funny. I always operate off of like a habit tracker. And I was telling one of my um, coaches that I mentored the other day, because I kept trying to put visualization in and, you know, a lot of times it wouldn't happen. And I'd be frustrated because I didn't, you know, check the box and I don't rest. And so what I told her was I, well, this was before it was on my list. So I decided that at 2.15, when my workday was done and before I went to get the kids, that I had to check off visualization. And so what happens every day at 2.15, I'm super motivated to win on my tracker because I want to check the box. So I lay down on the couch and I shut my eyes and I quote unquote visualize, but I fall asleep every day because I'm so tired by that time because I've been going since 5 a.m. Yeah. But it gets me to rest because I want to check the box. That's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. Sometimes people like us, you just need to create those things where we also feel like we're competing with our rest. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I was competing for my rest and I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm on a good, I'm on a winning streak. (laughs) I'm on a win. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, I'm the same. And I look, I got sticky notes on my desk. I love checking stuff off. I don't yes. know if it's because I'm just very pragmatic or maybe competitive or, but I feel like you totally get it. <laughs> yes, I get it on every level. And, you know, this has been amazing. I'm not, I don't want to keep you any longer. I know you've got the busiest day and this has just been such a gift. You have no oh. idea. I felt in, I mean, I can't say this about almost, I don't even know anyone, like finding you on social media, maybe what, a year or two ago, and just feeling an instant connection. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're going to do work together, that yeah. there's going to be face-to-face work, that there's going to be coaching women. Like I just Mm -hmm. feel that and know that in my heart of hearts and to be able to just sit here and hear your story face to face and be able to share that with the world. Mm. Such a gift. Oh, you know what? I, you are such a gift and I know that we are going to do more together because as you were saying that I got goosebumps Yeah, and that's always, I know that may sound kind of crazy or whatever, but that's like always confirmation to me. Like hundred percent. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You are such a gift in my life. I mean, I think about you all the time. Every time I see one of your posts pop up, it just brings me joy. And we even had COVID around the same time. And it was really encouraging to get through that time and just have your updates. And, and so I can't wait to hug your neck. I'm so grateful. I feel so grateful for this opportunity to get to share with your incredible um, community. And so thank you so much. Absolutely. Tell me this before we wrap up, where can people find you? Where can they find your book? What's the name of the book or the name of the um, website? All the things, where can they find you? Yeah. You know what? Let me give your, your audience something special. I'll arrange this right now. Um, because I want them to learn the resilience and not just hear a story and be maybe, well, hopefully they, hopefully y'all are inspired. I really hope so. I hope you have hope after hearing this. No way they can't be. (laughs) But I want them to walk away with the tools. So if you just text me at 818-214-7378, just text the word GRIT, G-R-I-T, And I'll give you, it's just a free download and it's um, how to tap into your superpower of resilience and thrive. And it breaks down this five-part pacer method that I have. And I've just tell you real quick, somebody the other day, I got a message and they're like, is this a machine or is this, then somebody, is this a robot? And I'm like, "Uh, no, it's me. Sometimes I kind of feel like a robot, but no, it's me. That's why it took me two days to get back to you because I read every single message, you know, and so it is me. But if you want the download, just text that word. And then tell me, you know, that you heard it on the podcast so we can connect and and um, yeah. AmberlyLago.com is my website. My book is True Grit and Grace. My podcast is True Grit and Grace. And so I just, you know, thank you again for letting me come on here and share with your audience. Thank you so much. This has been the biggest gift. 
just wow. That woman, that story, all the stories. I hope you're walking away from this episode with your heart and your soul just absolutely as overflowing as mine is in this moment. Um, I hope that you take advantage of texting her and, and getting those resources that she chatted about right at the end. Guys, thanks for tuning in. And if you can, I'd love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to get not my message out to the world, but people's message like Amberly. I would love to hear back from you. I'd love to hear your takeaways from this episode or any of our episodes. I'd also love to hear any thoughts you have on upcoming topics or guests. Thanks again for joining. Thank you.